0: And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Well, good to see you again, Sunridge. 200 million, that's the number of people Billy Graham is estimated to have preached the gospel to in person. Now, that number doesn't include the countless people who read his books. Who watched him on TV or listened to him on the radio? What you may not know is that early in Graham's ministry, he faced a real faith crisis that shaped his worldview uh, and his ministry forever. And years later, in his autobiography, Graham recounted the night that he was walking through the woods at Forest Home Christian Camp right here in our own mountains. Uh, Our church has been to that camp. And finally, as he tells it, he stopped and fell on his knees. And he laid his Bible on a tree stump in front of him. And this is what he prayed. I'm going to put it on the screen. Oh, God, there are many things in this book I do not understand. There are many problems with it for which I have no solution. There are many seeming contradictions. There are some areas in it that do not seem to correlate with modern science. And I can't answer some of the philosophical and psychological questions Chuck, a friend of his, and others are raising. Now, a little plug about the Bible. Next week, we start a series in November about the Bible called Breakthrough. But just, I just stuck that in there. When Graham, in this moment of prayer at Force Home Camp, is unloading his anxieties and his fears to God, and he eventually comes to this conclusion. And this is what he says. He prayed, Father, <clears throat> I'm going to accept this as thy word. That's how Billy Graham talked in the King James English. By faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts. And I will believe this to be your inspired words. And in his own words, Graham would say that he crossed a major bridge from doubt to faith in this moment when he submitted his worldview to the design of Scripture over his own understanding and his fears. And that worldview gave him a clear mission throughout his life. You know, I think that the church today in America needs an awakening like Billy Graham had in that moment. Now, we'd all agree that Billy Graham is unparalleled. No one sitting here is a Billy Graham. But do you realize that each of us who are Christians, we have the same mission in life that Billy Graham had? Christians are called to a redemptive worldview. Christians are called to a redemptive worldview. Now, what do I mean by worldview? Let me give you a few quotes of people that are smarter than I talking about what a worldview is. First of all, from Ed Stetzer. A worldview is a set of fundamental beliefs that inform the way we see and engage the world. Then one one of my favorite commentators, uh, uh, N.T. Wright, he describes a worldview as the lenses through which a society looks at the world, the grid upon which we are plotted, which are plotted the multiple experiences of life. And then Charles Coulson described it this way, he said, it's the sum total of our beliefs about the world, the big picture that directs our daily decisions and actions. See, worldview, our worldview worldview shapes the way we see things, but worldview is also the product of the things that we take in. The decisions and habits and influence that we have are greatly influenced by the, the information, and the relationships that we have that invest in us. When I talk about a redemptive worldview, what I'm pointing out is that redemption isn't something that happens once in our lifetime, where we are redeemed. Redemption is also a way of looking at the world, and to have a redemptive worldview then is to see our lives through the lens that God wants to redeem the world, and that I'm not merely a person who has been redeemed by God's grace as a Christian, but I am someone who is a part of the world's redemption. Now, living with that redemptive worldview is different than just having a doctrinal position on redemption. It's not just living religiously or morally or conservatively. It is to live as the Apostle Paul wrote in his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 5 when he said that through Christ I have been reconciled or redeemed and I've been made a new creature, a new creation. And because of that, I have been given the ministry of redemption, the ministry of reconciliation, that is to point people toward the work of Christ in the way that Jesus did. I am an ambassador then for Jesus in the world. And I represent, in my space and time, I represent God's message of redemption to the world. And it was that redemptive worldview that Billy Graham had that enabled him to transcend all the decades of issues and controversies and different presidents that he worked with and be who we know him to be a voice of redemption throughout the world. Now, we're wrapping up today a study that we've called countercultural. We've just started in the beginning of 1 Peter and have gone through, and we're examining what, what does it look like to live counterculturally. And today, specifically, we're talking about, because this is the message of Peter, and it's the, how he wraps up the whole letter. We're talking about what it means to live as a redemptive counterculture, in the world in which we're living here in 21st century America. And these final words that Peter has uh, on living redemptively have to be seen through what we've referred to over and over again through this series as kind of like the pivotal verse or statement that Peter makes, and it's in uh, chapter 2, verse 12. He says that we should live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That's what Peter's letter is all about. About living in a time where there are challenges to Christians. Challenge to Christian thought. So much so that we feel estranged at times. We feel exiled or as foreigners in this land. And yet, what, how do we live differently in that moment? because that's what they were doing. And we're taking these things that Peter said to first century Christians in Asia Minor and we're bringing them forward. And this is kind of like just his final words on that. In order to live redemptively, Peter says, number one, we should exemplify humility. In verse six, he says, humble yourselves, therefore under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time and cast your Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now, is the theme of humility coming up a lot in Peter's letter? Is anyone, like, tired of that? (laughs) Let up on it, Peter. You know, it's like maybe if something's repeated over and over and over again, that God is sending us a message. And I think Peter was probably trying to emphasize something to these first century Christians. Humility here, he says, is a conscious and intentional act. He says, humble yourselves. Think about that. Normally, we think about being humbled by something other than ourselves, right? A a circumstance. You get humbled on the basketball court by that seven-foot-one person, you know, or you get humbled at work. We think of it that way, but Peter here is saying that we should humble ourselves. And has that not been a consistent message when he talked about submitting or humbling ourselves to the government, to our masters, husbands and wives, the entire Christian community? It's the way elders are supposed to lead in the church. It's the way members are supposed to follow, as we saw last week. It's the clothing of the entire Christian community, to be clothed in humility. Humility might be the most important virtue we as Christians can, can show or demonstrate in order to live counterculturally. Now, doesn't it seem like, and this is one of the reasons why I think this might be a constant message for Peter, like when, when, we're, when we feel threatened or when we feel under duress, isn't humility usually low on the list of responses? You get in a fight with your spouse, which I've heard about some Christians doing that. Or your boss tells you you're not cutting, it, and you gotta improve. Or someone just files a complaint on you. Or a coach pulls you out in an intense part of the game. Or you read something, or you hear something on the news and it doesn't square with how you want the world to be. Is humility our response? See, humility isn't being irresponsible. It's not being lazy. It's not having a weak theology. It's not laissez-faire, quesera, whatever will be. And humility isn't being liberal either. It's a Christian virtue. And here, Peter says it involves two things. Number one, giving God control. He says that we're to place ourselves under God's mighty hand, So isn't humility about trusting God more than ourselves? And when you think about it, isn't it prideful to think, you know, well, I know everything there is to know about this one thing. So no one can tell me something. And worse yet is when um, we're so prideful that we think that, well, I know the Bible says this. I know Jesus said that, but it really doesn't apply here. That's pride. Pride. He said, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up. And here's the second thing, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So humility is about giving God control and secondly, it's giving God our fears. Isn't that what it is? Fear in its other forms, anxiety, stress, worry, erase humility from our lives. Humility is... Facing that we have those anxieties, fears, that we want to control something, and then giving that fear to God. Control and fear, that's God's area. You know what it's like to be fearful about something and then stepping through that fear because you have confidence in the person that is leading you through something that you really don't know that much about. For instance, anybody ever repelled? Isn't it kind of scary to that first lean out on the rope? Who are you trusting in that moment? That guide, that 17-year-old that's <laughs> running the ropes course at Christian camp. You know, that's a good, yeah, that's good. Or like, have you ever held a tarantula? Anybody ever, who's held a tarantula before? Okay, you know, I've never held a tarantula. I don't trust anybody that much. But the guy that has, you know, the spider person, whatever, like, look, you can hold, and and then you let him crawl on you? That's not happening for me. (laughs) But to use that as a good illustration, um, it's our confidence in this person who knows more than us that helps us overcome or at least control our fear. And then the picture here of casting our anxiety on God, all of our anxiety is it's like it's saying load up your anxieties and toss them upon God. How many of you ever bucked hay before? How many of you have no idea what it means to buck hay, you bunch of little <laughs> suburban people? So uh, for multiple summers, the church that I was, uh, became a Christian in, we, I worked at their camp. They owned a camp in the middle of Florida. It's called Shady Grove Youth Camp. And uh, they had all this acreage. And when they weren't taking advantage of us to watch over children and do things, then they used us as free labor to bale the hay. So they would, I mean, these were giant fields. And uh, they would mow all the hay, you know, let it dry. And then, then uh, you, know, so, you know, they would go through and bale it all up. And then they would use us to buck those bales, to put those bales onto this big uh, flatbed. So the tractor would be pulling that along, and there would just be row after row of these bales. And bales of hay are really heavy, but we're like young. Most of us were going somewhere after the summer to play ball, and so we loved this part. In fact, we would make it a fitness thing. We'd go five, six hours where you just like, you'd, you'd run to the next bale and wait, and then when it got your turn, you'd throw it up onto the flatbed, and then they had people stacking these bales of hay onto the flatbed. The picture I have here is that we have all these anxieties all bailed up and waiting for us. They're in a row. And you go through life, and each time you come there to that bale, you can pick that bale up and you can carry it to the next bale and then try to carry that one. Or you can toss it onto the flatbed, to God's flatbed of worries. And you know what happens? It goes down the road. And your job as you approach that next bale of anxiety is to toss that one onto God's flatbed. Just buck it up there. As long as my pride is directing me, I will never have a redemptive world view. Because I will always be more focused on what's happening in my little world. And I'll always be focused on looking out for me as number one. And the reason why Peter keeps bringing up humility and living counterculturally is that pride causes us to see people as threats or to see people as enemies. And when we do that, there's no way that we can be redemptive in that situation. So we're to exemplify humility, which means give God control, give God our fears, and then secondly, Keep a clear head. Now, this is another thing that has come through three times. Peter has said this. Be alert and of sober mind. Alert and sober-minded. Casting your care upon God, but also be vigilant. It's not one or the other. It's both. Sometimes the way we think about casting our care upon God, it becomes irresponsibility. And then sometimes being alert... Uh, becomes misconceived to mean paranoid or anxious. Um, In the command training that I received over the years as a firefighter, did I mention to you guys before that I used to be a firefighter? And, you know, it's all about command presence and being calm. There's all this chaos going on, and your job as a commander of that scene is to bring calmness to it. And you know that's that it takes a lot. You have to trust in your people and your so you don't want to hear a speech about being a fire chief on an incident, but I've been on scenes as a firefighter and anybody here that's been in the military or like you're in police work or you know people that like turn in, turn the scene into chaos because they they're not commanding it. You have to keep a clear head. And to get elevated in a time when it comes for calmness will only create more chaos. So stick with me here, because I'm about to offend some of you. You guys okay? In fact, I'm pretty sure I'm going to offend everybody here by the time I get done. We're living in a really strange cultural moment in this country. And Christians are reacting in a not clear-headed way. You know, there are two kinds of people in America right now. Not Democrats and Republicans, not conservatives and liberals, not UCLA fans or USC fans. The two kinds of people are conspiracy theorists, and sheep. So turn to your neighbor right now and just tell him which one you are. <laughs> Don't do it! <laughs> I want to be clear here. I didn't call you one. Whatever, whatever you're, Whatever's firing you up, I know some of you are like starting to fidget right now with your papers and everything. I didn't call you one. But in the great world of concerns that we have today, there are things that are either true or false. And then there are things that we debate as to being good or bad. True or false is based on facts and evidence. And debated is when we see the facts laid out before us, and then we debate an outcome or or how best to approach that situation. And as a Christian, you have a responsibility to know the difference. Even more so if you're going to be part of the information pipeline passing on information. We cannot be lazy and simply use our confirmation bias to determine what, whether something is true or false. You've heard the story of the emperor's new clothes. It's a story about an emperor who this guy flimflammed flammed him into saying he made a new, this special robe and like king's or emperor's clothes for him. And he didn't. He was just naked. And no one had the courage to tell him that he was naked. And I think right now, people are afraid to just say, that is not true. Or at least to say, you, can you tell me where you found that? We have to be humble enough and clear-headed enough as Christians to get some perspective and maybe, on occasion, realize that we were wrong. If we cannot be both alert and sober-minded and humble, we cannot be redemptive in the world because we'll just try to scream louder than the person that we disagree with, and we'll just try to pump out more information than they're pumping out and to overwhelm them. You guys okay? I'm just trying to be truthful with you. Now, you especially cannot be redemptive as a Christian if you're passing on things that are not true. That's called lying. And by the way, that's one of the Ten Commandments, that we're not to lie. So, I'm not taking one side or the other when I'm saying that as a Christian, we have to be sure. So instead of being a conspiracy theorist or a sheep, be a humble, God trusting, alert, clear headed Jesus follower and be redemptive. Amen. Amen. I got one amen. Thank you. (laughs) Peter continues. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So he says we're to be humble. He says that we're to be clear-minded in order to be redemptive in the world. And then last he says to stand firm in the faith. See, being humble and clear-minded doesn't mean you don't have conviction. It's having conviction that is truly based in the Jesus ethic. That's what it means to stand firm. Stand firm is not passive here. It's not flaccid. It means to be stable and solid. In martial arts, they have grounding stances or you root yourself And and as you practice these, they push and pull on you, just so that you can show how sturdy you are, that you cannot be shoved around. And without that grounding, you have no power to resist and no power to strike back. Standing firm, Peter says, is in the faith. We stand firm in the faith so Christian, if you spend five minutes a day in your Bible, but cable news is on all day, what are you standing firm in? If you spend hours flipping through social media and YouTube videos, but you have no time to sit with other believers and process what God is teaching you in his word, what are you standing firm in? You guys okay? You know, I I lead a life group, Cindy and I, and our friends, the Muncies, and um, I can tell you that, you know, it's either a fortune or a misfortune to be in the pastor's life group, because you're talking about his sermon, you know. (laughs) Most of them have the courage to call me out on my baloney, but... um, You know, I study a lot for my messages, believe it or not. And you'd think when you get all, when I've spent all these hours on something, like you'd think I'd have looked at it from every angle. And every time, that is not true when I sit with other Christians. Every time I learn stuff that I never thought about, I'm challenged in ways that I wasn't when I studied on my own. And often I say, I wish I would have thought of that before I gave my message because I would have liked to add that in. I've even thought about doing my life group before sermons and just using all the stuff that they tell me. So standing firm in the faith is about absorbing God's word and the teaching of Jesus, Jesus, Jesus and processing that from multiple viewpoints and experiences with other believers that are walking the road with you and they're going to say things you don't agree with or that you never thought of and humility and keeping a clear head is going to allow you to stand firm in your faith and if you're going to stand firm Peter says you need to know who the enemy is and who it is not and he says standing firm involves a couple of things number one resisting the enemy your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour Resist him. You know, according to Barna research, um, 80% of Americans believe in God, but only 25% believe in the devil. And here he is right in Scripture. He gets way too much credit for the stuff we do, but uh, he's there. And, And Peter gives us two images in this simple statement of who the devil is. First of all, he calls him our enemy. You know, that's not a military enemy. It is an opponent in court. The word there, is an Im- it gives an image of a courtroom. And Satan is a shady prosecutor. He's a liar. He tells lies in court. He lies about us. He lies about the facts. He gets us to believe lies. And he seeks a wrongful conviction of you and me. He's such a smart smart, smart adversary in court. But he has been disbarred from heaven because he's such a shady prosecutor. Through sin, he was able to get God's justice against us as human beings, but our advocate outfoxed him and was able to redeem us, fulfilling all the requirements of justice and yet Us having forgiveness from our conviction. The language of the Bible is sometimes really powerful, isn't it? The second picture he gives us is of a lion. And this is a powerful image that just a few years later, these Christians are going to experience. The devil is a prowler like a lion, and he's looking for weak people. But Peter says here, resisting him causes him to move on. He's just a bully. When a lion is really on the hunt, he's silent. But a roaring lion is really just trying to devour the other animals with fear. It's a way of pounding his chest and putting fear into everyone out on the Whatever you call that thing, the Serengeti or whatever. I should think through my illustrations a little more. But in the end, lies and fear are the tools of our enemy. And you cannot stand firm when you believe lies or you're constantly plagued by fear, and they usually go together. The second part of standing firm is to join our allies, joining our allies. And here, Peter reminds them that they're not alone. He says, you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And this has been a common theme of Peter's letter too. We're family. And we're to link our arms with brothers and sisters. Standing firm is about knowing who the enemy is and knowing who it is not. But sometimes, Duress, confusion, anxiety, fear. It can make you think you're all alone. It can steal your hope. And that's bad enough in and of of itself. But worse, it can cause us to react. It can cause us to turn on our other brothers and sisters in Christ. You've heard of friendly fire. I remember one of my pastors used to say that, you know, the Christian army is the only army that shoots their own wounded. You know, when you're in a stressful situation with your, with your spouse or a coworker or teammates, you know, it's good to remember they're on, you're on the same team. I think, in fact, sometimes Cindy and I have actually said that to one another in the middle of an argument that she had caused. <laughs> We, we look at it and say, you know, we have to remember, we're on the same team. And I think Christians need to remember that. To have a redemptive worldview focuses on the mission that Jesus has given us and what the church, our fellow believers, were to accomplish together. And Christians are dividing today over all kinds of things that have nothing to do with Christian faith. And I don't think I need to list those for you. In a true crisis, we need to know who the enemy is. And we need to love each other deeply, as Peter said earlier in his letter. And if we forget that, we're lost. There's no way that we're going to have a redemptive voice in the world. And can I just remind you that your brothers and sisters in Christ, whatever their perspective is, on, they're not your enemy. They're your family. You know, Christianity has never been truly threatened by external forces. Every implosion, if you look through history, it always comes from within. Bickering and Christians just fighting among themselves. You know, uh, Peter here does a typical wrap up to his letter and I'm just gonna bust through these really quickly. Besides talking about living redemptively, he ends with a doxology, which is a praise of God. In verse 10, he says, in the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the, the power uh, forever and ever. Amen. And most scholars think this was a hymn that circulated and Peter, in the first century, and Peter just wrote it in there. And what it is is, you know, I think the emphasis here is to him be the power and glory forever. It's like a reminder that God God has not abandoned us. He's embedded us. And that God is in control. And he's called us to something that through his power we can do. Secondly, as in most of the letters of the New Testament, there's always mention of friends. And I call this uh, with a little help from my friends. Commonly, a letter in the New Testament would end with a greeting, and Peter does here. He mentions, uh, in verse 12, he says, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging and testifying that this is the true grace of God, stand fast in it. She was in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peter mentions Silas, who is the assistant in, in amanuensis, of uh, both Paul and Peter. And that's a big word, amanuensis. It means secretary. And uh, what he's saying here, most scholars agree, is that Silas helped Peter write this letter. Because people smarter than I have noted that Peter was a fisherman. And the language in his letter is far above what a fisherman could accomplish. So Silas is helping him. You know, I have an amanuensis here. I have many, actually. Uh, one is her name is Holly Sui. She is actually an editor, and with a lot of my stuff, I send it to her, and then she sends it back all fixed, <laughs> so I don't sound like a fisherman. And that's Peter's just throwing out that Silas has been a big help to him. He's a big help to Paul. He likely uh, helped with uh, First and Second Thessalonians. But I think the coolest thing about what is said about Silas is he calls him a faithful brother. Man, that's good. If at the end of our lives someone could say, that's a, you are a faithful brother or sister, that's really powerful. Uh, when, he, when he talks about she was in Babylon, that's likely the church in Rome. Some believe that it, he's talking about Peter's wife, but... Um, most of what I read, and again, like these are just people that are smarter than I, they say that Peter's in Rome at this time, and basically what he's saying is that, you know, there are people over here that are praying for you and they're with you. It's the whole family idea, that they are chosen together with you, and the church at Rome sends her greetings to you. They're in it too, up to their eyeballs. And they're thinking and praying for you. So to live out a redemptive worldview, uh, knowing that there are others that are with you, whether they're in in your face right here or they're part of the church somewhere else or that we're part of them, it keeps us from sinking into like a dark hole of despair or just becoming self-centered and think the world is just about what I'm facing today. It's much bigger than you and me or just even Sunridge or Temecula or California or this nation. There are others of us. There's always a remnant of faithful people. And then last, he mentions my son Mark, which is, it's probably exactly who you think it is, John Mark, author of the gospel, named after him. Um, And I love that Peter refers to him as his son. And what that's telling you is that Peter had a profound influence, and this is what they, Paul talked about Timothy as his son, right? So they're identifying this relationship that he has, this influence in his life. And the interesting backstory to uh, John Mark is that, you know, Paul got super frustrated with him because he abandoned them on one of their missionary trips. And then he refused to take him on other trips. And here's Peter kind of saying, this is my son. So he's not embarrassed of the failures of John Mark. And so there's a little redemptive worldview, even in that, right? A redemptive worldview allows us to forgive people who disappoint us, who let us down, um, and to move on with them as we all stumble forward. That's 1 Peter. That's what it means to live counterculturally. I'm gonna ask the band to come up. And uh, the last thing, that Peter mentions kind of makes me grateful that there isn't always a one-to-one connection to the New Testament for us, especially in the letters. He says that um, to greet each other with a kiss of love. And I'm really glad that we don't have to go around kissing each other. (laughs) That's just weird. Um, But that's, that's that's how he wraps it up. And then, you know, overall, it's just a reminder that everything we do, even standing on our conviction, standing firm in the faith, is all wrapped up in the love of God. And that speaks so loudly to a world that is confused or anti-Christian or ambivalent about Christianity. Love speaks every language. And whatever we do as a church, as an individual, as a family, in the end, it, it, it should demonstrate love. We just don't have to kiss each other. So I thought, how do I, how do I wrap this thing up? I'm super sad to, to end this series. And, um, but how do, how do we capture the whole thing? And I thought, the best way to do it is for us to stand and read a scripture from Peter. It's kind of like the crux of the whole matter. And you determine in your heart if this is going to be for you a declaration or a commitment. For me, it's going to be. And, it, and I'm gonna allow this scripture to guide me over the next few years, living in this crazy, chaotic world. We're gonna put it up on the screen. I'm just ask you to read it with me as a reminder of who we are, and what God has called us to be. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Amen. Amen. Join us in worship.